Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 26. I've mentioned a few times that all of the material from chapter 19, verse 3, through to chapter 26, verse 5, can be usefully studied together under the title, Opposition and Eschatology. Everything from 26.6 through to 28.20 can be grouped together under the heading, The Passion and Resurrection of Jesus. Thus, the first five verses of chapter 26 represent a sort of hinge in the story. The eschatological discourse of Jesus has come to a close, And it is time now to prepare for the great and climactic events of his earthly ministry. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And thus we come to the end of the sixth section in Matthew's gospel and prepare to enter the seventh. In this final section, Matthew follows the gospel of Mark very closely. Mark's gospel is sometimes referred to as a passion narrative with a prelude, meaning that Mark's focus is transparently upon the death of Jesus, and therefore the majority of his word count is given to describing the events associated with the crucifixion. Matthew has expanded greatly upon Mark's prelude, upon everything Mark said leading up to the cross, mostly by adding significant samples of Jesus' teaching and instruction to his disciples. But here he walks more or less in lockstep with Mark's gospel, while still providing several unique insights and contributions along the way. We jump back into the story at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We should probably note here that this is not the same story as the one told in Luke 7, 36-50. The only similarity is that Jesus is anointed by a woman and the occurrence of the name Simon. But Simon was a very common name, and none of the other details in the stories match up. Therefore, it is best to think of this as an entirely separate event. What is most remarkable about the story is the claim by Jesus that he is worthy of this sort of lavish praise. This incident represents a very high Christological claim by Jesus. To be worthy of this kind of Sacrifice in the midst of so many other options in terms of how this money could have been spent 
seems to be a challenge to the disciples to think carefully about who Jesus really is. If he's merely a prophet of righteousness, if he is merely a wise and benevolent leader, then this sort of worship is inappropriate and essentially blasphemous. But if he is God in the flesh, come to earth to die on the cross for our redemption, then no price would be too high, no sacrifice would be out of place, no worship would be inappropriate given his inestimable dignity and unfathomable goodness. That's the challenge in the text. And the very next story in Matthew's gospel reveals that it was a challenge that not all of the disciples were able to meet. We jump back into the story at verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, the Gospel of John makes the connection between these two stories even more explicit by telling us that it was Judas who was offended by the extravagant gesture of the woman and who then went to the chief priest looking to betray Jesus. Judas was looking for a Messiah king, but a Messiah who was also Savior and who received worship as if he were God was more than he was prepared to deal with. Verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Here again, we notice how divine sovereignty and human responsibility are often presented side by side in the scriptures without any sense of contradiction whatsoever. Jesus goes as it was written of him in scripture. And yet, Judas will be held personally responsible for his willful and tragic decision. That's antimony. That's Two things side by side, both being true, despite that we aren't sure exactly how they go together. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The various details of this passage have been debated at great length, but the main elements are beyond dispute. Jesus is appropriating certain aspects of the Jewish Passover to draw attention to his impending death upon the cross. Thus, it is appropriate for us to think about the redemption that is ours through Christ 
through the lens of the Exodus experience under Moses. Just as families hid themselves under the blood of the Lamb in order to be spared the wrath that fell upon Egypt, so now we must hide ourselves under the blood of Christ to be saved from the wrath that is to come upon the world. As the Passover meal commemorated the central Old Testament act of redemption, so too the Lord's Supper commemorates the central and climactic New Testament act of redemption upon the cross. The specific words that Jesus uses in verse 28 also call to mind the inauguration of the Old Covenant back in Exodus 24, verse 8, where it says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And and so Jesus is appropriating Passover imagery, but also making it clear that his death and resurrection will give rise to an entirely new covenant relationship between people and God. Jesus is clearly thinking here in terms of the new covenant prophecies in Jeremiah 31, 34. And he uses the phrase from that passage, for the forgiveness of sins. The heart of the covenant has to do with putting away sin and restoring the broken heart and damaged spirit of men and women. We should also notice that the Lord's Supper anticipates the great messianic banquet that is to come. Jesus makes that explicit in verse 29. It is, in that sense, a sort of appetizer or foretaste of the blessings associated with the kingdom of heaven. Verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting there from Zechariah 13, verse 7, verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The anguish of Jesus in Gethsemane was not simply the anguish of a man facing death. It was the anguish of the Son of God facing the prospect of bearing the sins of his people and dying alone as the wrath-averting sacrificial lamb of God. That is what caused him to sweat blood. That is what caused him to pray to the point of exhaustion. Now, concerning the meaning of the cup mentioned in verse 39, there's been a fair bit of debate in recent years. Leon Morris says usefully here, In the Old Testament, the cup has associations of suffering and of the wrath of God. As, for example, Psalm 11.6, Isaiah 51.17, Ezekiel 23.33. And we should observe the same kind of symbolism here, closed quote. So that was the issue, and that was the temptation. Jesus was again being tempted by the devil to pursue the kingdom of heaven by some other way than the road of suffering. 
And yet, ultimately, he submitted entirely and perfectly to the will of his father. D.A. Carson writes here, In the first garden, not your will but mine, changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours, brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Just quickly here, the homes of the wealthy in that part of the world were often designed as a square with a large open courtyard in the middle. That's the picture that should be in your mind as you hear the story. Verse 59, the scene shifting here back inside the house. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. In terms of the chronology of this highly irregular process, by looking at the details provided by all four Gospels, it seems that there were two trials, one Jewish and one Roman. 
The Jewish trial began with an informal investigation conducted by Annas, the father of Caiaphas, who had himself been high priest and who was removed from office by the Romans. The Jews still considered him almost a a co-high priest with Caiaphas. He investigated Jesus while the Sanhedrin was being gathered, presumably to determine what charges might be brought against him. The Sanhedrin then investigated Jesus. That's what we're reading here. In the next chapter, we'll see him sent to Pilate, who, according to Luke 23, 6-12, also consulted with Herod. Jesus is then returned to Pilate before being handed over finally for crucifixion. The Sanhedrin referred to here in verse 59 as the whole council was composed of the leading priests, teachers of the law, and elders. It had 70 members plus the high priest. It took only 23 to make a quorum, and we don't know how many of the members were present for Jesus' rush trial. We know that Joseph of Arimathea was not present and did not give consent to the decision. As indicated in verse 60, at least two witnesses were required in a capital case. We jump back into the story at verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Having failed to secure damning testimony from the witnesses, Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath and asks him flat out if he is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' answer is an affirmative answer, but it is purposefully ambiguous. It has the sense of, I am, but not necessarily in the sense that you assume. Leon Morris explains it this way. He says, it was a difficult question to answer because his understanding of Messiah and that of the high priest were so different. To say either yes or no could be misleading, So he says, in effect, that is your word, not mine. Or as another scholar puts it, yes, but not in the way you mean. Closed quote. One way or the other, it is clear that the high priest understands Jesus as having answered in the affirmative. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Jewish tradition taught that the Messiah would be able to judge by smell without need of sight. So these actions are clearly presented as a form of mocking rejection of Jesus' messianic claims. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We're often very hard on Peter, and yet only he had the courage to follow Jesus even from a distance. Nevertheless, in accordance with Scripture, he too, like all the other sheep, would scatter when their shepherd was struck. Jesus would have to face the cross without the support of his disciples. This too, however, was all part of the divine plan. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.